The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of December 12th, 2016. On this week's show, we will be joined by David Epstein of ProPublica to discuss the blockbuster report detailing Russia's sprawling state-run doping campaign said to involve more than a 1,000 athletes in 30 sports. Then another friend of the podcast, Sam Miller of ESPN, will be here to talk hot stove, all the news from baseball's winter meetings. And finally, we will welcome John Boyce of SB Nation, the man behind the Breaking Madden series, and talk to him about his latest work, an epic dive into the history of the scores of National Football League games. I am very, very excited for this segment. And as you may have deduced, Slate executive editor Josh Levine is off this week. Joining me from Slate headquarters in Brooklyn, New York, is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Before we chat, Mike, yeah, I'd like to play a clip. Okay. Who names their kid Emmett? I mean, Emmett, will you, you're going to stick with that name or are you going to change that when you turn 18? Oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to change it. What are you going to change it to, Emmett? No, no, no. What are you going to change your name to, Emmett? I know what he's going to change his name to, Guillermo! No! Yeah! <laughs> well, what name are you going to change his name to? Orson. Orson? Orphan! No! Orphan! I'm, can I spell it? O-O-S-I-N. Oh, orphan. <laughs> what? Orphan! <laughs> Okay. Oh, uh, Mike Pesca, those little ragamuffins. Yeah, those are those my guys. Little uh, rugrats. They're you guys. Tell yeah. us the story of Milo and Emmett. Nay, Emmett Guillermo. <laughs> well, that was very. So it's a homework helper segment, and I have to say, Jimmy really doesn't help that much with the homework. He just gets them to get into fights, and they taped a segment a couple months ago, and uh, it was very funny. It was very up until up until the segment aired. They put a lot of work into actually soliciting real homework questions, and then the questions are asked, completely ignored, and Emmett is uh, made to say that he'd like to change his name to Orson, which he mispronounces and misspells, so Jimmy Kimmel <laughs> thinks he wants to be an orphan. <laughs> how, did, how, did you get, how did you get them on the Jimmy Kimmel show? Uh, that's a, you know, it's secret kind of media uh, you got, you guys connections. In the yeah, yeah, I don't want to pretend that. So what happened was a year ago, we were walking past the Museum of Natural History and some guy says, hey, your kids want to be on Jimmy Kimmel? And I was like, sure. <laughs> and they did a segment then and they were funny. Did you see that segment? It was very good. Did not. Sports connection because it was the difference between LA and New York kids and Milo, my oldest, they, they, they asked who's the dumbest person in LA and this was right after the end. LDS and Milo said the manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers and literally a day later Don Mattingly was fired and he takes full credit for that <laughs> so anyway they were on and then the producer like oh yeah they were really funny and you should see Emmett in that one he was talking about growing up fast in New York and then they did this one and it was it was very good it was very comedic it was very good very well done all right let's uh whimsy watch you went to the Cowboys Giants game you got any whimsy uh, it wasn't I, a very whimsical game. No, there was a there was a lot of um, missing of uh, field goals and not even getting first downs. Is one for fifteen on third down? Is that whimsical? Is Des Bryant without a catch in the game gets a catch then fumbles it in the last play of the game? That was pretty yeah. good. Yeah, 
Yeah, not very whimsical. I, I, my favorite whimsy of the weekend has to be snow. I love snow fields. Mm-hmm. I was very excited when I turned on the TV and I saw the Buffalo. Was it Buffalo Green Bay playing in the snow? Buffalo, no, it was Buffalo. Pittsburgh. It was Buffalo Pittsburgh. And, Pittsburgh. And Levy yeah, and Bell. playing in the snow. I, I guess the snow only affected the footing of the Buffalo defense. I mean, <laughs> when we say walked in for a touchdown, oh my God, did you see a couple of those Bell scores? It's crazy. But did you see whimsy? Let's get back to the whimsy that the game was delayed. The start of the second half was delayed because they shoveled the field. They snow plowed the field and they yeah. shoveled up too many of the rubber pellets. So there were mounds of rubber pellets all over the field and they had to clear the field. And then the players went back to the locker room until they got the pellets off the field. My concern was that the pellets are supposed to make the field softer. Mm-hmm. So no pellets, bad field. Well, snowy, snowy, soft field. That, that yeah. did the there was other the, the, the other the other snow whimsy would have been that the NFL didn't find Richard Robinson of the 49ers and Randall Cobb of the Packers for making snow angels the previous week. Or pellet angels. They should make pellet angels. Pellet angels would have been if they that would have been a good celebration. All right. On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we will address the news that Donald Trump is reportedly considering as the next U.S. ambassador to Japan. Former Chibalate Marines manager Bobby Valentine who would actually be more qualified than many of the people being hired for the new administration. There's never been a better time to sign up for Slate Plus for Slate's 20th anniversary for a limited time. We are offering 30% off annual memberships. That's just $35 for a year of Slate Plus with bonus segments of this and other Slate podcasts every week and a lot more. So if you haven't joined Slate Plus, sign up before this offer disappears at slate.com slash hangupplus. Earlier this year, a Russian whistleblower exposed a widespread state-run doping operation culminating with a dark arts operation at the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi, in which urine samples were smuggled out of a testing lab in the dead of night. Anti-doping officials followed up on the claims, first with an investigation that resulted in 100 Russian athletes being barred from the Summer Olympics in Rio, and on Friday with a report and mountains of evidence revealing a comprehensive doping program involving more than 1,000 athletes in 30 sports over several years. Also, granules of Nescafe allegedly used to hide tainted urine. Who knew? Nescafe. David Epstein, who covers science, medicine, and sports for ProPublica, is with us now. Hey, David. Hey. The chief WADA investigator, the World Anti-Doping Agency, the lawyer Richard McLaren of Canada, said, for years, international sports competitions have unknowingly been hijacked by the Russians. Some of the facts in his report do seem kind of astonishing. More than 1,100 pieces of proof uploaded for public viewing. McLaren said every urine sample from Sochi that he examined was tampered with, around 100 of them, including those of at least four Russian gold medalists, and that failed doping samples were covered up for another 15 Russian medalists from 2012 in London. McLaren had issued this other report last summer before the Rio Games alleging the state-run doping. How far ahead does this new report push the story? Uh, I mean... It's mainly more lurid details. I think anybody that had been following it sort of figured at this point that anything that was going through the Sochi lab was totally tainted. And honestly, one of the strangest things here to me is like, you know, mixing samples with Nescafe. They have male athletes taking urine samples for female athletes. It's in the mouse hole. They're passing samples through a little hole in the wall at the anti-doping laboratory. And when all of that stuff failed, they just reported positive tests as negative because the host country was controlling the anti-doping lab. So I'm like, why did they just save everyone a lot of trouble and potential whistleblowers and just 
report all the tests as negative ahead of time. I don't even understand why they took all the intermediate steps. They really overthought this. So to be clear, this was the Russians. This wasn't the Chinese. This wasn't a fat guy sitting on his bed. This was the Russians. <laughs> I, <laughs> looks that way. Yeah. Uh, so couple questions. The Sochiness of it, um, that is what allowed yeah. them to at least do the last step where since they control it, they could define up is down and left is right. But would a country be able to, if they wanted to, go to this extent um, to try to cheat if they weren't hosting the actual games? I, I don't think they would be able to, to go quite this far. I mean, the lab had lost its, the Sochi anti-doping lab had lost its certification like several times in previous years. And there was actually a meeting um, in the lead up to the Winter Olympics in Sochi uh, where, you know, IOC and the World Anti-Doping uh, Community sort of discussed whether they could transfer the lab certification to a lab in Moscow to keep it operational. So it was basically like, how can we figure out any way to make sure this lab has its accreditation back in time for the games? And had they not had that, you know, had it gone somewhere to like the the lab in Montreal or something like that. I, I don't think they would have, you know, there's still stuff you can do, but I, I've seen some translations of secret recordings um, of some of the people involved in this. And they were saying, you know, one of the reasons they, they cut a hole in the wall of the anti-doping lab is because they were actually surprised to be getting caught by a new kind of drug testing called the biological passport. Yeah. And so I think they would not have been able to you know, they they wouldn't have been able to cut a hole in the wall as easily of a lab if it wasn't kind of if they hadn't had their own federal aid. I mean, the guy who was running the anti-doping lab was also a Russian like secret agent, you know, and the head of anti-doping. I think that would be hard to pull off in another country. But though, to be fair, the report said that the Russian Olympic team, quote, corrupted the London games on an unprecedented scale also. Right. And it's not. And, <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. And I would also add that well, you give me, tell me what you think. Was there a Scooby-Doo if it weren't for your, you meddling kids moment? Or was this thing, how sophisticated was it in terms of trying to actually succeed in the cover-up? Do you think this was destined to fail because um, there were whistleblowers involved? There was actual uh, physical evidence that wasn't doped far enough. There were, you know, trying to, trying to, the, the, everyone knew that the lab was should have been taken offline and they kept arguing bureaucratically as you just said that they weren't so that's my question um were, were was getting caught inevitable from everything that you have read and seen no i don't think so i mean the russian teams you know and and certainly russia is not the only country that's had doping problems but the russian a lot of high profile athletes have had some you know they've shown up in with doping problems more often than the next country, in many cases, even before all this stuff, right? So this isn't a brand new thing, but the scale of this, you know, I don't think it necessarily would have come out. I mean, it was, whistleblowers were incredibly disincentivized, right? Like they have government agents um, around the anti-doping labs, everyone's supposed to be on the program. I mean, I've talked to some of the athletes who are involved in this and some of them feared, you know, like the, the first whistleblowers that came out had to flee to the United States. Like they didn't want to come here. They had to leave everything, but they were afraid for their safety. And so I think that's a pretty good enforcement mechanism of not having people become whistleblowers. And even once they became whistleblowers, it was kind of shuffled off by WADA and the IOC. And it took one investigator at WADA who was then forced out later to, to go back and forth to Russia a lot and follow up these allegations. So 
I think they increased the chances of having whistleblowers by having so many odd steps, but I don't mm. think it was inevitable. Was well, then, then how much of this was Russia sensing that WADA was ineffective and taking advantage of it? Sally Jenkins uh, wrote in the Washington Post over the weekend that, quote, the dunces at WADA wouldn't know how to open a childproof pill bottle unless it's got cash in it. The WADA allegedly knew about this state-sponsored doping for, what, five or six years um, and sat on it until that whistleblower was uh, went public. Um, so Sally's main complaint, and this is one that you pointed out she has made for years since she wrote this Lance Armstrong book, is that it's not about the cheating and it's not about the medals, but it's about the athletes who were forced to dope. They're the victims here. They are human rights victims. No, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, we can see even even uh, some Yulia Stepanova, you know, one of the original whistleblowers, like she shared some information with me about her doping program. And it was like she didn't even know what she was doing. Like she was injecting drugs like into the wrong parts of her body and stuff like that. Well, this you know, is like, like 1970s East German shit. Yeah. And I mean, so I, I do think that that, you know, that the athletes in, in many ways were victims. A lot of them, I'm sure, would not have chosen to do some of this stuff. But it was basically you do this or you're not on our national team, you know. And as far as WADA, they certainly were tipped off earlier, but they did. It did take them a while to run an investigation because they only really had one investigator. But the other thing I think that's sort of overlooked here sometimes is the head of WADA alternates leadership between, you know, basically someone independent and someone from the IOC over time. And the last couple of years, it's been a very powerful member of the IOC has right. also been the head of WADA. And I think that's also facilitated some of this because I think WADA for years was actually going in the right, more credible direction under leadership that was much more independent. One thing that uh, this does is it allows the people who just look at suspicious times or suspicious accomplishments and without any evidence of who injected what, you know, there's the there's the game of either the athletes or the experts saying, wow, look at that jump in whatever measurable time. Now we can match that up and those suspicions to this investigation. How good were we at just sussing out and raising red flags um, based on evidence where we didn't even know for sure that doping was happening, where it just seemed really suspicious? Yeah, I, it's it's hard to say. I think there are some legitimately, you know, amazing and world record performances that are, um, that are not doped. And in fact, I think it's when athletes in many cases do amazing things today, it's even more impressive because they, even if they're, even if they're doping, they're doping less than the people who were setting these records in like the eighties, basically. Um, but you know, Russia, one of the reasons Russia was so suspicious to people who were following like track and field, for example, for years was a lot of these drugs, all these steroids are analogs, chemical analogs of testosterone, and they work way more powerfully in women. So when all of a sudden overnight, a country has like all these female world beaters and their men are still kind of mediocre and getting better slowly, you start to raise an eyebrow if there's no like obvious funding or social explanation for it. And so I think when that kind of happened with track and field in Russia, where all of a sudden overnight, you saw this explosion of women's world beaters and not so much on the men's side, that's kind of a pattern you sometimes see when there's like massive systematic doping. The names of the athletes were redacted from from these reports. Do you think that's the right approach here? Are we should should we sort of exonerate them from from real culpability that they were victims of the state like we discussed earlier? Oh boy, that's a good question. You know, I think they were I, I do think they were in many ways victims, some of them. At the same time, I think every step of non-transparency at this point is is 
is you know threatens the right. whatever is left of the credibility of this whole enterprise and particularly to those athletes who feel like they were cheated and saying like well why are these people being protected when i did the things i was supposed to do so while i i you know i wish we could all have more kind of sane conversations about it like maybe some of these athletes names would come out and we don't decide they're the worst people in the world or we have to disavow them or the organizations have to disavow them so i i wish everything could be out in the open but we could also have sort of less hysterical conversations about it. Well, so people aren't going to get their medals stripped? The fourth place finisher is not going to win a bronze and then a silver, ultimately? No, I mean, in, in some of those cases, that is going to happen. I mean, some, some well, the, the retests, a lot of the retest samples, those people have, their names have been out there. And my guess is that a lot of those retests were targeted based on information from the investigation. So my guess is that medals... We've already seen a couple medals that, like, uh, you know, American Kara Goucher, for example, should be moving up to a world championship silver. Um, so I think some of those will be redistributed. But we, we can't really know how many should have been and aren't because we don't know who it was. Give me a sense of internationally, who are Russia's allies on this? How much of a pariah will they there be? I know that the big Western European countries are four square against this. I mean, there might be, you know, individuals who are either on the take or not have the best interests of sports at, at heart. But what's the politics of this going forward? And let me jump in there and just say that Latvia, obviously a former mm-hmm. Russian uh, state, announced that its skeleton federation won't attend the world championships for bobsled and skeleton, which are going to be in Sochi in February. Yeah, which is totally bananas. I mean, it, it kind of it, it kind of varies. So there are other countries that have kind of gone low profile, but have had, you know, been non-compliant with world anti-doping standards. Spain, Mexico at times and things like that. Turkey has had uh, labs stripped, stripped of accreditation. And Recently, you know, when WADA made the recommendation sort of after, you know, fair amount of pressure from its own former lead investigator to say, you know, maybe Russia shouldn't be in Rio, there was kind of pushback from some national organizations. I remember Spain was a major one saying like, well, who is who is WADA to tell us like national federations, the IOC, what to do? And you're kind of like, well, that is sort of their role. But that that led to this pushback to say like, well, maybe we should curtail some of WADA's powers. And you have the head of WADA, who, again, is a high-ranking member of the IOC. The president of the IOC has been, like, as supportive of Russia as any human being could possibly be. He's, mm-hmm. he's friends, personal friends with, with Putin. Um, and well, Who have, isn't these days? No, I know. That's right. It's like dime a dozen there. Um, but, you know, you, now we've had this, instead of saying, like, hey, we need a more independent body, some of the pushback has been, well, we don't want WADA dictating what we can do, right? I mean— this, yep. Some of these international sports governing bodies, I, I'm serious, like not to impugn everyone by any means, but for some countries, I think they're like where a head of state sends their corrupt cousin so they won't cause trouble in their own backyard, you know? And it's like they have power and they have clout and they have a travel budget and they have absolutely no oversight or accountability and the trouble that they're going to cause is going to be in some other country. Right. And and in spite of investigations and, and envelopes of cash and people getting kicked out, there is a persistent belief that the culture continues. Russia is also hosting the Men's World Cup soccer tournament in 2018. I um, mean, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, the, the IOC has made it such that if you notice so few countries will bid for a lot of these events anymore because right. it's it's like it becomes such that you have to pay so many bribes that like only Russia and like Qatar are left in the running anymore for a lot of these things. Now, you were in Russia right before the Olympics uh, in, in Rio. And 
the, the reaction there to this is that it's a conspiracy, right? That we yeah. are, that this is an American plot to undermine Russia. And yeah. given what's happening here with the election, obviously, that's kind of ironic. Okay, yeah. I mean, this was this was a shock to me. I hadn't been to, to Russia before, and I couldn't read there. I wish I would have been able to read there media when I was over there, but I, I would talk to a fair number of people and they felt the, you know, some of them believed there was some doping, but the the typical uh, view from my non-scientific survey of just talking to people was that it was like Russia was just doing what America was doing, but with worse drugs, like with older drugs, basically. And that the United States, this was kind of a United States plot to make Russia look bad. And you know, do you remember years ago? I don't even remember how long ago it was when that sort of sleeper cell of s- Russian spies got captured in the U.S. and there was like this one woman who, yeah. like, the Daily News made out to be a Bond girl or whatever, and all this stuff. The sexy redhead, sure. So, so that was brought up to me twice when I was talking about this as saying like this is like that old plot when when the United States set up some and claimed we had some spies just to make us look bad and that they caught them and sent them back. And I was like, seriously. Like there's really some kind of complex going on over there. I, I that would never have even occurred to me. Yes, they they claim she was a spy. She now lives in Moscow, and uh, Anna Chapman was her name. I want to make another point. Okay. Tell me if you have anything to say about this. There's not just a parallel between the Russian hacking with the elections and what <clears throat> what we found out with the doping. The very same groups are involved often in the very same way. There is a group called Fancy Bear, maybe you heard of. There's a group called Cozy yeah. Bear. And these are mm-hmm. different levels within Russia of their of hackers, and they're part of APT, which stands for Advanced Persistent Threat. All right, They're government hackers or government-aligned hackers. And then what they do when they get caught, and this is from the Russian playbook, is they engage in smears and disinformation. So if you remember a couple months ago, there were all these WikiLeak-type hacks that revealed that uh, legitimate sports stars had medical exemptions. They they published the medical exemption list and, you know, Rafael Nadal or Mo Farah was supposed to be embarrassed by it. It is exactly what's happening in American politics. The only difference is with with the with the sports and the doping, which I will, even though I like sports, say is not as important as the presidency of the United States, at least the Americans are A, acknowledging and B, upset about it. So what if the president, imagine this as a thought experiment, what if the president of the American Olympic Committee just went on all the news shows saying, yeah, you can't believe this, and we don't know if it was the Russians, and, you know, organized uh, whatever, he doesn't even have as much power as Donald Trump in this analogy, but did everything he could to say, pay no attention to this report. We'd never have reform in that area. That's exactly what's going on in the political arena. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't, it's, I, I just, I'm just confused by this. You know, I think I'm sort of reeling in the, this, you know, what is fake news and era like, like the next person. And, and I'm, yeah, I don't know how to make the analogy, but I think that's a, I think that's a good point. And I think there are a lot of parallels and I really, it's, it's making me realize like why, um, you know, not that I didn't before, but why when somebody wants to be a dictator, or whatever, one of the first things they do is basically like take over the the media. And one of the potential outcomes is that Russia will continue to deny that there was a state run plot here, though the evidence is obviously overwhelming. And on some level, there's going to have to be some change and some reform within the Russian sports complex. Within, right, it's within the Russian sports complex, but not the political arena because they're getting pushed back, arena, right. pushed back in the sports context. Yeah, only. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I'm not even sure there's going to be reform. They just appointed Yelena Isinbaeva, who is, you know, one of the all-time great. She's the world record holder in the pole vault, one of the all-time great uh, track and field competitors, who was like been one of the most outspoken defenders of Russia and like was going crazy that, um, you know, that the track and field team was banned from Rio, and they just made her like the overseer of Russian anti-doping. So I don't see yeah. like right. if they're they're going to host these events anyway. Right. Like the president of the IOC is going to make sure that if he says, you know, oh, something needs to be done about this, that it only comes after nobody's watching when the Olympics have already happened. Like, what's the incentive for them to do anything? Right. So the, the answer could be ban the Russian athletes from competing in Russia. Right. right. And that's obviously not going to happen. David Epstein writes for ProPublica. He is the author of The Sports Gene. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Major League Baseball last week held its winter meetings at a Potemkin Village mall and condo fake town called National Harbor, located just far enough outside of Washington, D.C. to make convention goers say, eh, it's too far, I don't want to go to the city. There's a job fair component to the baseball meetings, but in an industry in which 90% of business is conducted via iPhone, it seems silly to make everyone fly all over the place to make and announce trades and free agent signings from one place. In any case, they do it. Biggest name baseballers, including Chris Sale, Dexter Fowler, and Araldis Chapman, Changed jerseys last week. Joining us to discuss those moves and other baseball stuff is Sam Miller, national baseball columnist and feature writer for ESPN. Welcome back to the show, Sam. Thank you. Chapman. I like Chapman. Chapman. I got I get some grief sometimes because I say fireman. And some people think that that is unacceptable. That it has to be a, a sort of a a uh, abridged man. And I'm not sure about the uh. Aroldis. I think it's Aroldis in Spanish. Everyone says a roll this. Or are you Why trying to be? Isn't it? Isn't the default the uh, the penultimate syllable is stressed in Spanish? I don't know. Someone once said a roll this to me, and I believed them. Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, you didn't go to the winter meetings, did you, Sam? No, sir. No. Why does baseball still have them? Why does baseball still have them? Well, I mean, you know, you uh, there is a lot of business that gets done there that has nothing to do with Adam Eaton. Uh, the bulk of business, I think, gets uh, has nothing to do with Adam Eaton. It's so on. I think that there's some real benefit. <laughs> yeah, there's some benefit to uh, having the whole industry there for the, uh, you know, for the minor league operators and right. for all the job applicants and the vendors. I mean, if you are a vendor selling a new kind of uh, radar gun. Uh, there's really no way to to peddle your wares uh, so efficiently as the winter meeting. So I think it's uh, most of the action probably happens uh, somewhat outside the. Yeah, it's uh, a tail wagging sphere. the dog thing. Yeah. 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 Uh, the uh, big signing, I guess, or the big trade was Chris Sale going from the Chicago White Sox to the Red Sox. The Red Sox odds of winning the World Series instantly went to five to one from ten to one. Yankees general manager Brian Cashman called Boston the Golden State Warriors of baseball. I think he might have been trolling. Chris Sale's moving to a hitter-friendly park from a pitcher-friendly park. He gives up lots of fly balls. They would be homers in Fenway where they were outs in Comiskey or what's it called now? Arrow Down Park or something like that. Um, David Price has had the same problem. Was this a good signing for the Red Sox? Does it change well, the balance of baseball? First of all, I think that it maybe isn't necessarily trolling so much as Brian Cashman is uh, perhaps operating on the transitive property because a lot of people are also saying the Red Sox are now the Yankees of baseball, uh, trading from their deep farm system to get uh, star veterans. And uh, maybe if enough people call them the Warriors of uh, baseball, then uh, someone will put two and two together and, and decide that Brian Cashman in the early 2000s was actually uh, a ahead of his time maverick mm -hmm. genius. I, I mean, the Red Sox are clearly going to improve 
uh, by this trade. Chris Sale is, um, you know, probably the best pitcher in the American League, but it's not exactly like a feat of imagination that they went out and traded for the best pitcher available by trading the best prospect in baseball. I mean, it's actually fairly gutsy to trade the best prospect in baseball. That guy almost never gets traded. And that would uh, be... That would be Yohan Moncada, uh, who um, is one of this sort of great crop of young players that Dave Dombrowski inherited from Ben Charrington's bid to build a player development machine. And there's a lot of ways to get value out of your young players. Dombrowski recently, as well as more recently with the Red Sox, has seen prospects as very valuable trade pieces uh, that you can use to improve your major league roster uh, by getting guys like Chris Sale. And I I wouldn't be that worried about the um, fly ball aspects or the left-handed aspects of it. I think ideally in a park like Fenway, yes, you'd rather Chris Sale was a right-handed sinker baller. But he's been phenomenal. I think that there's a little bit of a concern that his uh, peripherals went down last year, that he isn't throwing as hard, that there was this story that he was pitching to contact, which maybe he was, but there is also a story that he doesn't throw as hard as he used to. And pitchers generally go in one direction uh, when it comes to throwing hard. And we don't exactly know what the next three years are of Chris Sale, but you know, committing to three years of Chris Sale at a bargain price, yeah. certainly beats giving seven years to David Price at a record-breaking price. So you said a lot. I'd like to uh, react in order. One, I definitely think that Yankees brass wants to consider themselves to be the Warriors. The analogy being years ago, someone saw the three-pointer and decided to organize the Warriors. Just like a year ago, someone decided to tell Gary Sanchez, go hit a lot of home runs. It was the same sort of insight (laughs) and reimagining the game, the genius, the brilliance. Second thing is... Sabermetrics. mm -hmm, That's right. That's what what that definition of that word is. Second thing is, if the Red Sox were considering having any kind of restrictive or ugly throwback jerseys, this Chris Sale acquisition puts the kibosh on that. So we're pretty happy about that development. But the last thing is I want to talk about Yoan Manchado. And that is when he was a Red Sox, all I heard from Red Sox Nation, they're a nation now, is this guy's going to be the best. This guy's a five-tool player. But then when he got traded, I heard a lot of, you know, he's probably destined to uh, be a DH. Um, how five-toolsy is he? And since the Red Sox had this pretty decent DH named Ortiz who correlated to victory, what would be bad with that? Wow, I have not heard that he's destined to be a DH, and I am also, uh, you know, not a scout hound. I mostly know what I uh, read by other scout hounds. And Moncada is, uh, you know, he that that he's a DH seems uh, like a stretch to me. He not only plays a position, uh, but he plays uh, prestigious positions. He's played second and third base uh, for most of his career stateside. He is extremely athletic. He is very fast. He has all of those things that make a good defender. Uh, so uh, he will probably be a D- I, I, In fact, I would say with almost certainty that he will be a DH uh, by the time he is 39 or 40. <laughs> but there are a lot of years before then. I mean, this isn't the most uh, being the best prospect in baseball right now is not the same as being the best prospect in baseball five years ago. Uh, uh, you know, we've seen a, a huge wave of star young talent graduate to the majors. Uh, and so there isn't there isn't a you know rivalry like there was with Bryce Harper and Mike Trout a few years ago or anything like that. But still, we know from uh, 20 years of, well, I, I guess we're coming up on 30 years of the prospect ranking era since Baseball America started doing it uh, in earnest uh, around 1990. And there's almost nothing more certain in a young player than a uh, position player 
who is in the top 10 among all prospects. Those guys don't miss that much. They miss sometimes. There are Brandon Woods out there, uh, but they have a tremendous amount of value, a relatively predictable career path uh, ahead of them, and uh, Moncada won't be paid what he's worth for seven years, uh, and that carries a lot of uh, value to a team that's rebuilding like the White Sox, but it also carries a lot of value that's not rebuilding like the Red Sox, and they decided that uh, rather than, uh, you know, cash in those seven years of somewhat uncertainty. They've bet on three years of the also uncertainty of a pitcher's arm. I think that the the thing about Chris Sale uh, that makes him so appealing is that you don't have to pay him to be good six years from now. Um, yeah. That You only need him to be good yeah. for three years. He is good today. That means there's a pretty good bet that he's going to be good tomorrow. And if you look at what the Cubs did in building their championship team, all the long-term investment, all the long-term risk, was in position players who were relatively right. predictable. And then the day they got good, basically, was when they went out and, you know, signed three pitchers and, you know, went out and got a closer. And I think the idea there was don't bet on guys being good when you're good sometime in the future. Get them when they're good and you are also good. And that defines the Red Sox. And look at what the Cubs just did, too. They allowed Dexter Fowler to leave $82 million over five years. He was going to, to St. Louis. They did not re-sign Chapman, who's gone to the Yankees for $86 million over five years. Um, and Jeff Passan wrote a piece on Yahoo noting that, that, that while management has a lot of tools here, qualifying offers, other ways to try to dissuade players from leaving, players are waiting and cashing in. Free agency is certainly not dead. And teams are being either, you know, teams like the Cubs seem to be pretty judicious about how they're approaching the market now that they've won and built a core where a team like the Yankees says, ah, you know, we've got all these young guys we can we can afford to to throw some money at Chapman and hope that in five years he's OK, even if it's going to cause us some payroll issues uh, in the in the near term. Yeah, somewhat judicious. I mean, they also signed Jason Hayward a year ago and they signed John Lester two years ago and they signed Ben Zobrist and John Lackey last year. Right. I mean, the the way that you had Jeff on last week to talk about the collective bargaining agreement and um, it it really does seem like um, the the primary incentive for the players is to keep as much money in the free agent market as possible, uh, even at the expense of 16-year-old Dominican kids or 18-year-old American high schoolers. Uh, and uh, it, it is really even more than ever now the, the only place that you can spend a lot of money if you are a team. And all these teams have a lot of money. So for, um, you know, for free agents, there's a, a ton of incentive uh, for them to get to free agency before they get too old uh, and, and cash in. And I think that what we've seen a little bit is that the extension boom that happened about six, five, six years ago, where all these young stars were signing extensions pre-arbitration. There's been a little bit of a pause on that, just because players are realizing that the earlier they get to free agency, the more they're going to be able to cash in on this system that really benefits free agents and, and almost nobody else. Yeah, and of those Cub signings, uh, three of them have been good to, you know, in Lester's case, really, really good. Jason Hayward... I know that the uh, the thought was, hey, at very worst, he'll be a great glove. And that is exactly what happened. He has been very worse and not much more than a great glove. But, you know, if you have the ballast of the young players uh, who aren't getting paid that much, you could take one or two of those hits, especially if you're a rich team now like the Cubs. Yeah, and especially if you have 
five stars that are all playing yes. in pre-arb pre-arb salaries. So right, let me ask what you, the Yankees are hoping. Well, this is my problem with the Yankees. Um, they seem to have. Uh, a poor grasp of what they're going to be over the next two years. They signed Chapman for five years, and I would imagine in years three or certainly four or five, they'll be the old Yankees contending. But by that point, Chapman will be the diminished player. So you're paying them all this money, essentially knowing or being reasonably sure that it'll be good for the next two years. But I don't think the Yankees will be good for the next two years. Why do the Yankees think the Yankees will be good over the next two years? Well, I I don't know if they I mean, if you sign Chapman, it's not as though you're you're really bankrupting your future. He's you know, he's expensive for a closer, but he's not expensive for um, you know, for a player exactly. He's not a guy who you're going to go, "Well, we can't sign Bryce Harper because we already signed Aroldis Chapman." He's um he's I think that there are a few reasons that it, it makes sense for the Yankees to sign him. One is that even I, I don't know for a fact, but even with a no trade clause, players are still tradable. They just have to agree to be traded. And if you look at what the Yankees got their first go round with Chapman and also with Andrew Miller, they signed these guys for money, nothing but money, and they traded them for huge prospect returns at the deadline. It seems like more than almost any other player, the closer's value goes up as the season progresses and more teams see themselves as postseason contenders uh, and um, more teams see the holes in their bullpen. So it's possible that they know that even in year four or year five, Chapman is going to be very easily movable uh, and that it's you know possible even that he could be moved before then if he consents to it. But the Yankees, are it's not like they're a bad team. It's not like they're rebuilding. They won 84 games this year. They were a wild card team the year before. They've lost some pieces, but they have some young pieces coming up. They, they, you know, they are a team that has said in the past and that columnists had said about them that you can't rebuild in New York. You can't tear down. And I, I don't think that they have any appetite to win 73 games. And so even in a season where maybe they're not the favorite, maybe they're in fact now distant uh, uh, underdogs to the Red Sox, they still have to play out the season as though they're one of the contenders. And, and in a sense, they are. There's no reason to think that this team couldn't win 88 games and a wild card spot. In I which know case, it'd be nice to have Chapman. I know they won 84 last year. Their Pythag was uh, 79 wins. I don't know. They outperformed, which is a good credit to them. But I think because they're the Yankees and because uh, their fans expect them to always be good, they assume they'll be good. I liked your point about the brass thinking that they could get value for Chapman. But two questions. One is, what's the history of flamethrowers? I also am going to put forth that they they might know that other relievers occasionally get hurt. But since their big experiences was with Mariana Rivera, Vera. Maybe they don't feel that it's really true. They only know it on an intellectual level that relievers, you know, get hurt or or lose their stuff. So what's the history of a flamethrower over five years uh, show? And the second thing is, do you have any thoughts on the fact that I know they had him in their clubhouse and they liked him as a person. And yet when you look at just the empirically um, unassailable fact that he was arrested so many times and not just for the abuse, but for, you know, whatever, driving 95 on a suspended license and shooting his gun into a wall. Like you could be the nicest guy in the wall in the world. But when you, those things pile up, I don't know, I would think that that would at least affect the uh, the calculation of paying the guy uh, the absolute most that anyone it is his position has ever gotten paid. 
Yeah, if you and I were running a team, we might think that way, and um, I wish other teams thought that way. But, I, I mean, it seems to me that scandals in sports are sort of a lot like scandals in politics, where once they've been litigated once, nobody has really any appetite to litigate them again. And so as long as you can get it in the past, as long as it's a thing that you've you know been elected with this over you, nobody really brings it up again. And, I mean, Chapman's value last offseason was sunk. The Yankees got him for uh, a very low cost in terms of in terms of prospects. Uh, another trade that had been uh, apparently close to agreed upon with the Dodgers was uh, scuttled. But three months later, the Cubs decided that they were going to reset his market, basically, and they decided that he was extremely valuable. And I don't know that a scandal that is more than a year past matters. I mean, if it does, a couple of days ago, I, I happened to be reading you know an old piece about Miguel Cabrera, and it was talking about his scandals, his drunkenness, him going into what I think he went into a into a bar and and threatened to uh, I should look this up before I say, but like, you know, was like threatening in the bar and everything like that. I mean, he had some really dirty history, too, and nobody thinks about it anymore. Um, nobody talks about it anymore. Uh, that is probably not for the good of society, maybe. But that's how teams gen- generally operate when it comes to kind of old scandals. You know, the biggest mystery of this offseason, I think, is uh, is what's going to happen to Ginny Baker on pitch mm. on Fox. Uh, the mm. season ended with her sliding into an MRI machine. Possible Tommy John surgery? I don't know. They're keeping us hanging. Were you a pitch watcher? I was. My wife and daughter loved pitch. We watched pitch. Um, your old employer, Baseball Prospectus, had a weekly pitch conversation between two staffers, which I, I, I loved. Um, what's your feeling on, on Jenny Baker's first season in the bigs? <laughs> I, uh, I also I, I watched the first episode and then was only faintly paying attention to it, except because I was reading the BP uh, recaps of it. <laughs> so I, I don't know that I know the ins and outs. Like I haven't figured yeah. out what uh, Eric from Entourage's role exactly is, but I, I gather he's he's a stat head. Is he a stat head on he's the show? He's kind of like the he's supposed to be the Theo Epstein, like the president of baseball operations, who's brought in, and he apparently was a math guy. But Pitch is very confused about analytics. Um, Eric from Honorage is he's a terrible character. He doesn't seem to understand analytics at all, and he doesn't seem to do any work. Um, the, his decision-making seems completely <laughs> spurious. Um, he, we hired Eric. We Ginny. got Turtle. <laughs> right. Uh, they shut down Ginny Baker near the uh, end of the season during a playoff run because some analytics intern who was despised two episodes ago as a total goof comes up with some theory about the strain of throwing the screwball and the drop in her spin rate. So, yeah, Eric is uh, is a weak link on the show. Not doing analytics any favors, I got to say, on pitch. Yeah, not doing analytics any favors, but also in the the part the the episodes that I've watched, it doesn't do a lot of favors to the old school either. It seems to me that that the show is very intent on establishing Ginny's agency as a character, which yes. I I think I like that. I think that's really great. And so in in the sense that any dogma or any philosophy or any ism is uh, seen as basically a source of conflict that is threatening to take away her agency. Uh, everything is pretty much a, um, you know, potentially a, a supporting character that is is doomed uh, to be defeated by Ginny Baker. So I am uh, I'm not too defensive of uh, of stat head uh, stat headism in uh, primetime television. But I think in, in this case, it suits the character and it suits the story just fine, at least with my uh, kind of uh, two thirds understanding of, of the plot. But why they make her 
pitch a screwball when they could have just made her pitch a knuckleball and that would have been much more plausible. Oh, you couldn't throw a knuckleball. You couldn't have, if you had her throwing a knuckleball, then she would just be an exception to the sport as a whole, right? It wouldn't be athleticism anymore. Oh, so the gimmick uh, nature It would be gimmickry, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so they had to have her, I think it was was right that they had to have her throwing with a major league repertoire. And a screwball is a nice uh, pitch that you don't hear about very much. And you know the great thing about the screwball? is it has the word screw in it, which makes it sound screwy. And to the uh, fan who is uh, watching the show but doesn't know a whole lot about uh, major league pitches and spin rates, screwball is just, I mean, screwball is a, a term so good that they would have had to make it up for this show if it didn't exist. That's right. Yeah. They, 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 they could invent whole genres of film about screwballs. Yeah, comedies, maybe. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. Sounds, sounds, sounds promising. Sam Miller writes about baseball for ESPN. He is the co-author with Ben Lindbergh of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, Our Wild Experiment, Building a New Kind of Baseball Team. They cut Aroldis Chapman, I think, right? You didn't sign him. You refused. <laughs> we uh, we had some baggage on our team. I will say that when it when it came time to actually make decisions, uh, we we might have turned a few cheeks that, that we might have... Uh, Otherwise not. Didn't you sign that reliever with 83.4 tattooed on his forearm? (laughs) (laughs) The the soft tossing lefty who decided. That's how fast he he throws and drives. (laughs) Thanks, Sam. You're welcome. Listeners of this podcast know that I am fascinated by the scores of NFL games, but not routine scores like 20 to 17, the most common final score of the more than 15,000 games played in the league's 96-year history. In fact, there was another 2017 game on Sunday. No, I am talking about scores including numbers like 2, 5, or 11, and especially scores that have never occurred before. According to Pro Football References' indispensable all-game scores page, as I speak, there are 363 final scores of up to 50 to 50 waiting to happen, including every possible score involving a 4 except for 10 to 4, which occurred once in 1932. But I digress. I was thrilled and relieved to learn that I'm not the only one transfixed by the mathematical beauty, probabilistic mystery, and epistemological wonder of weird NFL scores. And it is no surprise that that person is John Boyce. John is the creative director of SB Nation Labs, the man who brought the Madden video game to its knees and talked about it on the show, and now the John Nash-like genius behind Scorigami, a 20-minute video exploration of the history of NFL game scores, and a very cool chart, too. John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Stefan and Mike. I'm happy to be here. Uh, You define Scorigami as, quote, the art of building final scores that have never happened before in NFL history. We had some uh, almost scorigami on Sunday. Tampa, New Orleans held some hope for a while. 20 to 11 was in play. 22 to 11 was in play for a while. But it was not meant to be. Final score was 16 to 11. That had happened once before in 2014. My obsession with weird scores dates to 1970 when seven-year-old me was watching the Cowboys beat the Lions five to nothing in a playoff game. How did you get hooked? Uh, I actually kind of started with the number 11, which is what we saw yesterday with the Saints. Uh, The number 11 in football is a really disgusting number because it means uh, probably no touchdowns being scored. Uh, Probably it means three field goals and a safety, which is just kind of grotesque. Uh, And it's just sort of it was interesting to me to look at a number like that. Like, 
11 in any other sport is not a hard to get to number, but the ca- like the math of NFL is so weird that you can only score six or three or seven or eight points at a time uh, that it's, it's almost like an unscratchable itch. Let's talk about 11s. There are a few ways to get to 11s. You mentioned fours. Have you done an analysis of games with two safeties? And when there are two safeties in a game, does that really open things up? Is that where the scorigami juices get the most flowing? It can. Yeah, it's interesting. This is where the math gets interesting as well, because if you get three safeties in a game, that's six points and you get six point blocks all the time in scoring. But if you just get two uh, plus no other scoring, that would be four points, which is almost that as far as my research goes, uh, that's only happened once in the the entire history of the NFL. And uh, to score exactly two and to have the, the offense score exactly no points, like to score two safeties, and that's it. The odds of that are just astronomically rare to the extent that I don't expect to like ever, ever see it. Well, speaking of that, the holy grail of Scorigami would be a four to four game. And you do the math in your video, and it really is something. So let's listen to you describing the math of a four four outcome. On average, a team scores a safety every 32 games, so the odds of scoring two in a game are about 1 in 1,000. The score has to stay at 4 points, so the offense has to be shut out. The odds of that are about 1 in 70. So for a team to finish with exactly 4 points is about 1 in 74,000. Now for this to happen to both teams in the same game, the odds of that would be 1 in about 5.5 billion. Of course, we're still not done because these odds only get us to the end of regulation. This overtime has to be scoreless, right? So the odds of a completely scoreless overtime are about 1 in 87, which means the probability of a 4-4 to final score is about 1 in 471 billion games. There are 267 games in a season, so if NFL rules and behaviors never changed, we could expect to see one 4-4 to game every 1.7 billion years. Hey, you know what? That's pretty good news, because we should have about 4 billion years before the surface of the Earth gets melted off by the heat of the sun, so there's plenty of time. So at least two 4-4 games are in the Earth's future is what I take away from that. I would hope so. I mean, you know, there are a lot of things that could go wrong uh, between now and then. Uh, There's a chance I might be dead before we uh, reach year number four billion. But uh, yeah, I just I see a score like that four to four. Those are such average regular numbers. You know, Uh, it's it's I think more likely that we'll see a complete change in the structure of the NFL. I think it's more likely that a team would do that on purpose to be funny than to just have that happen organically. Well, you point out that there are some coaches that seem to be scorigami sensitive. Jim Harbaugh, Bill, Be- Bill Belichick, Pete Carroll, though, he's had seven scorigami games since 2010. He won all of them, including the 43 to eight Super Bowl, which had, there'd never been a 43 to eight game before. I think, I think uh, Carroll is totally doing this on purpose. And I think someone needs to ask him if he's aware of, of that. Yeah, I'll tell you, like, if I were to do it on purpose, this is pretty much how I would do it. I would have a Super Bowl scorigami and I would do exactly one every season, which is what he has done in all seven of the seasons. Mm. And I would win all of them. Like, honestly, scorigami is sort of a, you know, he's sort of the pilot of the scorigami And he's the one that sort of his his Seahawks are the ones who always sort of put this little penny on the tracks that makes, you know, the, the railroad like snap off of it. So, you know, for example, in the Super Bowl, uh, it started on a safety, safety in the first play from scrimmage. And that just sort of set the table for everything else that happened after it. So he's kind of, you know, it, uh, even if it's not intentional, he is the architect behind all of these wins, which I find amazing. 
you might say there's a conspiracy there with Pete Carroll. I don't know. Absolutely. I don't know. Uh, Pete Carroll, <laughs> as I recall, believes in some conspiracy mm. theories himself. Uh, yeah. So I thought that maybe Chip Kelly might help with the scoregami because, you know, he loves to go for two and get high mm-hmm. scores. But his offenses have just been so bad. He hasn't been able to work his whatever potential magic he had or what magic he brought to the college level with the weird Oregon duck scores. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of scores involving zero that have never happened. So maybe if his offense keeps being terrible, there's uh, some potential there. Would you rather hmm. see, is there a Holy Grail? Is zero two four four is great, but what about zero two? Yeah. Oof. Uh, two zero has, has happened. happened. It's happened. Oh. Uh, it happened in the early days of the NFL back in, you know, the 20s when uh, the, the forward pass was there, but it wasn't really used that much. Uh, there was a lot of, I mean, there were zero zero ties were actually pretty common, more common than like 2017 today. It, yeah, I think it was, there were what, five scoreless ties and a two to nothing game in 1922. Yeah, yeah. And there was a uh, actually, if I recall, I think it was 1932, the year yeah. the Chicago Bears their first four games, yeah. uh, the scores were zero 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 two zero. Yeah, it's it's amazing that uh, football didn't sweep the nation immediately. Okay, it's now <laughs> it's now possible to score one point, right? It is. It's good question, Pesca. <laughs> this is this is what this is what John. I'm going to step on John a little bit. This is what John calls dark scoregami. Tell us about dark scoregami. <laughs> This, I call it dark score gummy because it's one of the few ways that you technically can score according to the NFL rule book, but you really shouldn't if something has gone horribly, horribly wrong if you have. Uh, it it's takes a little bit too long to illustrate in full, but basically you would need to score a one-point safety while on defense during a two-point conversion. So basically, you know, obviously during a two-point conversion, you're playing defense, the offense has the ball at your two-yard line, so you have to get a safety 98 yards in the wrong direction. Yes, now, yes. you would think, like, right. you can't just take the ball and run at 98 yards. You have to make them do it, which how that would ever happen, I, it, I can't exactly tell you. Pete Carroll! Well, it would happen if, right, the only way it could possibly plausibly happen is that if the defensive team picked up or intercepted, ran it all the way down, somebody caught him, mm-hmm. fumbled, recovered in the end zone, safety. Fumble or fumbled out you of know, the back I, of the end zone, yeah. Or fumbled out of the back of the end zone, yeah. That or, and, and that even seems less likely than a first scene from the last Boy Scout scenario where somebody in, at halftime is gets a call from like a bookie and is like, you have to score exactly one point in this game. And, and, they, and they do it like that. Scorigami, the screenplay. <laughs> if they do, we know where the investigators are going to focus their attention, John, right on you. <laughs> John, John, you point out there have been three Scorigami spikes in NFL history. One was 1946 when the uh, All-American Football Conference was founded, so you had more teams, more games. The second, 1960, the American Football League was founded, and the AFL allowed two-point conversions. They had some awesome scores, 43 to 43 in 1964, the highest tie ever. And the third spike was 1994 with the addition of the two-point conversion in the NFL, which you note saved the art of scorigami because really the league had settled into these scoring patterns. There was only one new score in 1992. Do you think there will be a, a another change in scoring? Because there have been historically changes in, in the scoring rules in the NFL. And B, what do you think the likeliest scorigami to come off the board is going to be? Well, I feel like 
the NFL is so hesitant to change and they so want to cling to the old ways. Like to, for the example, take the uh, point after touchdown, you know, it's kicking used to be, you know, a hundred years ago, kicking was the point of scoring. It was right. touchdowns or what you got to get to the kick. To well, score I think at one point there was a five point play in, in the NFL. You got five points for scoring. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it was a five, four or five point field goal. And like this thing at this point, kicking is almost like an appendix where they just won't get rid of it. And they keep trying everything, including moving the uh, extra point distance back. So, you know, even then it only takes the percentage down from like 99 to 95 or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think they're so hesitant to get rid of it that I kind of don't see them making any major changes uh, it could happen uh as far as the most likely scoregami to come off the board next there are a lot of territories out in like the sort of like uh, 40 See, 40 is a pretty ugly score to get to uh mathematically based on the little seven and three point blocks you got so something like you know 40 to 33 i i have i don't have the numbers in front oh, i've of got me. i've got them in front of me yeah you got okay. 40 to 25 40 to 31 40 to 36 40 to 40 40, 40, 40 to 12 would be tough. Ooh, 40 to 12. Yeah, that'd be terrible because that what that means is that the 40 team is racking up such so many points in weird ways. And then the 12 team is like, well, let's kick a lot of field goals to catch up. So that's that's just not happening. I just want to go back and amend something. It does the one point play apparently doesn't have to be that 98 uh, yard scenario. It can be the team blocks the extra point, retreats out of the end zone, then runs back into the end zone, you know, to try to gain an advantage is tackled in the end zone. That's one point for the kicking team. Yeah, that is one point, but the uh, the thing there is that it's basically for the kicking that's team, Mike. So oh, they right. would have already scored, scored six. God damn. Yeah. Yeah. So that just gives you you had that's tethered to the six points they had to score to even get that play. So it's really just seven points, but it's a very weird way to score. There really is a sort of a refusal to even acknowledge the existence of the of this scenario. Even on the the Pro Football Reference page of missing scores, they don't list six one or eight one or nine one or ten one or all the ones. Yeah, it, what's really interesting is the NFL in general is so allergic to the number one that if you uh, for say you're an NFL team and you forfeit a game, that means the other team wins uh, by a default score of two to nothing. Uh, they just give them two points to just signify that they won. They could just do one, but they don't because they're to they're so scared of the number one. Yeah. Well, you know what would help here would be the rouge, and I, as everyone knows, I'm a huge fan of the rouge, the the, the Canadian one point score when the punter kicks it out of the end zone. Oh, sure. And, you know, the the CFL has been around, you know, roughly as long as the NFL have that, you know, Canadian American football kind of are twins that grew up around the same time. So who's to say who has the correct game? I mean, uh, the one point Rouge is kind of awesome. Just kick it far yeah. as hell and see what happens. Yeah, John, you got to do Canadian scoregami and see what's going on up there in Canada. <laughs> I'm going to need about 27 million slide rules to, to pull that one off, but I should. Mike, you got anything else? Oh, I think we've, uh, I mean, I very much enjoyed our conversation, but I think we've exhausted it. What do oh, you think? I don't <laughs> think so. I Pesca. know, but I I'm trying John to pull and I, you back from the abyss. John and I could probably take this private and, and, and we could go for a while here. Pretty, pretty oh, soon, absolutely. if you I look at the listenership of the podcast, you will have taken it private. <laughs> <laughs> I will point out, we, I mentioned the 20 to 17 at the top. It is so far ahead statistically of the second most frequent score, which is 17 to 14, that it almost seems anomalous. 
Yeah, it's it's odd. And uh, we were kind of talking a little bit about this earlier, but my only hypothesis, and this is just kind of a shot in the dark, is that it's just way more common to have, say, seven qu- scores than it is to five, just based on the tempo and the number mm-hmm. of possessions you usually have. Mm-hmm. Uh it's like it's two set two fifty one for twenty seventeen and one ninety three for seventeen fourteen. So it's yeah, it's a weird deviation. But I guess it's just as long as they're hanging out on the field, they may as well score a couple more times. All right, I'm rooting for eleven to eleven in the playoffs. All right, well, it wouldn't be go. in the playoffs. We'd have to go eleven eleven, and then that wouldn't work. Twelve eleven, yeah, twelve eleven. Twelve eleven works. Twelve eleven is origami. Yeah, we could do that. Pete Carroll uh, figures to be in the playoffs this year, so I'm going to go with uh, two and a half to negative four. <laughs> Pesky, you got a prediction for a scoregami? Just give us what you think might be a scoregami, and I will check and see if it if it is indeed. Well, well I did notice that a lot of the uh, one point games, like twelve, it does seem that twelves and elevens happen rarely, but they do happen. But twelve against eleven has never happened, right? It seems like a lot of right. one point games uh, don't All happen. Right. I think we all need to pick one score that's going to come off the board next. I'm going with 25-18. I'm going to go 40-25. to 25. Ooh, that's good. Uh, I'll go 12-11. John Boyce is the creative director of SB Nation Labs. You can read about and watch his video on Scorigami at SBNation.com. And now it is time for After Balls. Mike, do you know who ordered and who scored the first two-point conversion in NFL history? If you know the answer, don't say it. And let's just listen to this. Way to go, offense! Then Bill Belichick became the first coach to call. From the hold of Tom Tupa, they go for two. And Tom Tupa, the first player to score a two-point conversion. Oh, my, what a play. Did you know that? That's awesome. The Browns punter, Tom Tupa. First week of 1994, he scored two more two-point conversions and gained the nickname Two-Point Tupa. Well, that, that, that nickname is unavoidable when you're Tom Tupa and that happens born, to He was born to have that nickname. Maybe the NFL changed the rule just so Tom Tupa could be nicknamed. Yeah, maybe, that, maybe it was just a stenography uh, mistake, you know. Tupa, mistake. A Tupa yeah. conversion became a two-point conversion. <laughs> Mike, what's your Two-Point Tupa? So I was reading about the 1991 Orange Bowl, which uh, of course ended 10 to 9, an unusual score, but not unprecedented. And in that game, uh, a clipping penalty uh, caused Rajib Ismail's punt return that would have won the game for Notre Dame. Uh, that, that was called back. But here is a note at the bottom of the Wikipedia article about that page. Two players named Charles Johnson played in the 1991 Orange Bowl for Colorado. One of these, the backup quarterback who was named co-MVP, is mentioned in this article. However, this player never played in the NFL and has no Wikipedia page because he is deemed non-notable. The other Charles Johnson, who was a wide receiver in the 1991 Orange Bowl, but is not mentioned in this article is deemed notable because of his NFL career and has his own Wikipedia page. This can be read as totally without bias, without fear, without favor, just factual. Yet I see, I see anger in this note. I see an injustice being expressed in this note. I see in this note a cry for fairness. So that was one Wikipedia note that 
I came across. Then, and I'll tell you how I got to my next Wikipedia note, I was listening to Mike Francesa talk to Ron Darling, and Francesa was talking about two great players and one of the best Mike Francesa name that I've heard in years, Rico Cotti. He was talking about how great Rico Cotti was, what, what a great young player, Rico Cotti. Yes. Yes. Lula Morello, that is the perfect Mad Dog name, and Rico Cotti is the perfect Mike Francesa name. But they were talking about another great or near great of their era, Richie Allen. And then they were talking about Dick Allen, and I got confused because I knew about the young Philly slugger Richie Allen. And then I knew Richie about Call Me Dick Allen. I didn't know this That's whole what he once said. Right. I didn't know this whole story. So Richie Allen became Rich Allen and then wound up as Dick Allen. And there is a baseball card breakdown.blogspot.com. Just scrolls through all Richie Allen's cards until, and so you see the evolution of how Richie became Dick. And so I was wondering, when did this happen? And I went to the Wikipedia page, which is not the Richie Allen page. It is the Dick Allen page. And I came across this reference. Musical career. Do you know anything about this, Stefan? No. Dick Allen sang professionally in a high, delicate tenor. The tone and texture of his voice has drawn comparisons to the Harp Tones lead singer, Willie Winfield. During Allen's time with the 60s-era Phillies, he sang with a doo-wop group called the Ebonistics. Ebonistics? You know, ebony, ebonics. I'm not sure which mm-hmm. way they were going for. Probably ebony, so ebonistics. Dick Allen and the ebonistics sang in the Philadelphia nightclubs. And here is this my favorite part. He once entertained during halftime of an NBA Philadelphia 76ers game. The Inquirer printed this review. Here came Rich Allen, flowered shirt, tie six inches, 152 millimeters wide. I don't know if that was in the original Philadelphia Inquirer review or the Wikipedia changing it and giving us the metrics. Hip hugger, bell-bottom pants, a microphone in his hand. Rich Allen, the most booed man in Philadelphia from April to October, when Eagles coach Joe Kuharich takes over, walked out in front of 9,557 people at the Spectrum, still drawing those crowds at the Spectrum, to sing with his group, the Ebonistics. A most predictable thing happened. He was booed. Two songs later, though, a most unpredictable thing happened. They cheered Rich Allen. They cheered him warmly as they have ever cheered him for a game-winning home run. So he had he had a great talent. He didn't always make do on his talent. Uh, he was rich. He was Richie. He was Dick. But it was with his high, delicate tenor that he eventually won over the Philadelphia crowd. There are websites dedicated to the fact that Dick Allen, Rich Allen, Richie Allen is a difficult baseball card to collect because of his uh, his constant name changing. Yeah. Can you think of others? I remember Jeff Leonard became Jeffrey Leonard. And, yeah, uh, one flap down. Yes, yes. But I can't remember, you know, Jeff to Jeffrey to Jeffy. I can't remember a three-name changer. <laughs> Maybe change it to G-E-O-F-F. Yeah, Joffrey, King Joffrey Leonard. Exactly. Stefan, what's your 2.2-pa? The childhood voice of my favorite baseball team, the New York Yankees, was the Scooter Phil Rizzuto, the Hall of Fame shortstop. Scooter was best known for talking about cannoli and his wife, Cora, and leaving the booth early to beat the traffic back to Jersey over the George Washington Bridge. I think I mentioned once before that uh, his disjointed words were turned into a book once, Oh Holy Cow, the selected verse of Phil Rizzuto, in which the writers Hart Seeley and Tom Payer 
took the scooter's play-by-play and said it as poetry. It's brilliant. Now, Josh, just the other day, was roaming around the Internet Archive doing some research, and he alerted me to a find in the 1970 to 1979 Radio News Archive. It is labeled Phil Rizzuto on Lightning. It's from (laughs) August 8th, 1974. The Yankees are on the road against the California Angels. Let us listen, and we'll pause for commentary. Egan is given an error. And the Yankees get a light. Uh-oh. Holy cow. As they put that error sign up, a bolt of lightning. Now you hear the thunder right in back of the scoreboard. Outside. And that's where I'm heading in just a moment. Only there's nobody here to take this microphone over. Al Brown can't do it because of the union rules. And the crowd is starting to scatter now. The pitch is hit in the air to deep right center, but moving to his left is Nettles. And Morris Nettles makes the catch. One out. All right, now Rizzuto took a lot of shit for his scatterbrained play-by-play, but this is brilliant. He calls the pitch outside, and then he says, that's where I'm going. What a segue, don't you think? Wait a minute, Morris Nettles? Yeah, not Greg. Oh, okay. I was wondering why Greg Nettles was, holy cow, White. I love when he talked to White. (laughs) White. We've got that coming up. We've got it coming up. here, 19 to 2. <laughs> it's coming up. You should have seen that bolt of lightning. Holy cow. The whole crowd saw it. Uh, Bill White's trying to now. He, if Bill White was any kind of a buddy, he'd come over and grab this mic. <laughs> Now, Bill White, you mentioned, White was the second color man for the Yankees. He was a former player. He worked alongside Rizzuto from 1971 to 88. He became National League president in 1989, appointed by uh, Bart Giamatti. In the booth, he was Rizzuto's foil, as Pesca just Holy cow, White! And he was his straight man, and Rizzuto always called him White. You saw that lightning out there. I know you did. <laughs> White's not talking. Well, I want to tell you. There was another boat and another clap of thunder. (laughs) This is great because, like, right there, all the catchphrases and ticks that Rizzuto employed. Holy cow. I want to tell you. I want to tell you all the time. I want to tell you. And then the interplay with White was classic. Rizzuto was always asking everyone around him to do shit for him. Not because he was a pain in the ass, but because he was so innocent and so goofy. And everybody played along because, A, Rizzuto was easily played, and, B, everybody that loved him, and they knew that it made great radio. And Dick Williams is coming out now, and they might, holy cow, what a bolt of lightning. Dick Williams might want to walk Maddox to pitch to Bobby Mercer. And if he does, oh, Bill White, what a buddy you are. Right, Rizzuto never says what Bill White actually does. No. And that's also classic Rizzuto. He would say stuff that made no sense on the radio because he'd be talking about something that only he was seeing or thinking, and then he wouldn't explain what was going on. And I let's see what they're going to do. If they're going to walk Maddox, because he is red hot right now. They're going to walk him. They're going to put Maddox out. Oh, there's another one. They're, oh. <laughs> jumpy man. He does it again. Yeah. He's, he's trying to care about the game, but he clearly is completely yeah. freaked out. <laughs> He's so much better as announcing the weather than announcing baseball. <laughs> it's amazing. And I want to tell you, 
This lightning is really hitting all over this ballpark. And more and more fans are scattering. And Dick Wiggins, of course, realizes that if the rains come now and the game is called, it'll be a 1-1 game. But if the Yankees should get a base hit, even though this inning is not completed, the Yankees would win it. And here comes Bobby Merson. Now, Bobby's been up twice and struck out both times. Two out. All right, the fact that it's Bobby Mercer, who is my hero, makes this the perfect clip for me. Now, let's listen to the conclusion of Silver Zuto on Lightning. Pitch, line drive, base hit, left center. That's going to score two runs. Two runs will score, and the Yankees lead two to nothing. All right, the Yankees did not go ahead two to nothing. Then you may have uh, caught earlier in the in the recording, Rizzuto saying the score was one to one. But after Mercer's hit... Scooter said that they were ahead 2 nothing. I checked retro sheet. It was indeed 1-1 to at the time. Elliot Maddox and Sandy Alomar scored on Mercer's hit. The Lightning apparently did not strike the stadium because they got all nine innings in. The Yankees won 3-1. to Pat Dobson with the win. Frank Tanana, at the peak of his sexual prowess, as discussed in a previous afterball, took the loss. Now, it turns out that Richard Sandomir of the New York Times also had heard this audio and wrote about it after Phil Rizzuto died in 2007. He said he was sent the clip by a guy named Paul Doherty, a talent agent who had kept a library of Yankees audio. Commenters to his post on the Times website remembered other times that Rizzuto was terrified of lightning in the distance. He thought the broadcast booth could conduct lightning, apparently. One commenter remembered that Rizzuto explained his fear of lightning once during a game Quote, apparently he was playing minor league ball in Kansas City as a young man when a bolt of lightning struck and killed the center fielder, the commenter wrote. I have not verified that anecdote, but I do want it to be true. Not that the guy died, the center fielder, but that that would be why Phil Rizzuto was so scored. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. And when you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Please become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. I think at some point we should ask listeners, we should give a quiz to what all the URLs are that we read every week. Yeah. Our intern is Shane Monahan. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is... Listeners? Who is it? Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Remember Zelmo who? Thanks for what? <laughs> Remember Zelmo. Just like we should put blanks in there, yeah. Hello, Slate Plus members. Last week, WEEI in Boston reported that former Red Sox manager Bobby Valentine is under consideration to become U.S. ambassador to Japan. I mean, why the fuck not at this point? Why not Bobby V? Uh, Russia might be a better fit since he's got that mustache and glass disguise mm-hmm. you know, that, that, the, that from his days with the Mets when he went into the dugout. In any case, Bobby V, WEEI said, is a natural for the job. He's known Trump for decades. He's very close to Trump Wall Street toady Anthony Scaramucci. He's friendly with Linda McMahon of World Wrestling, uh, just appointed by Trump to become the head of Small Business Administration. And, of course, he managed the Chiba Latte Marines for seven years, speaks some Japanese, 
which in a world in which Ben Carson is going to run HUD and a climate denier is taking over the EPA, it makes him overqualified, I think, Mike. Yeah, well, uh, Bobby Valentine compared to most other members of the cabinet, I know a lot more about Bobby Valentine and I could say he's yeah. he's a smart guy. Um, He's not great. He doesn't seem diplomatic. That would not be a word that I'd you mm-hmm. know, apply to Bobby Valentine, but he's not so much of a uh, of of a live wire that he can't be reined in. Um, I I listen to him a lot on ESPN broadcast, and he really not only does seem to know a lot about Japanese, he seems to have a real respect for them. He has seemed to have yeah. a fascination for the Japanese. I speak mostly of Japanese baseball, but you could it when you say why the fuck not? Like let's compare him Valentine to Japan versus Linda McMahon to Small Business Administration. I think mm-hmm. the Valentine pick makes a little more sense. Oh, I don't disagree at all. And I think that you're right about Bobby V. He talks about his years in Japan with tremendous respect. I mean, mm-hmm. he was one of the rare Americans, the gaijin, to go to Japan as a manager, as a player, and embrace the culture completely and really want to understand how Japan worked, how Japanese players thought, how Japanese fans thought. Um, he was, I think, I mean, I don't know if there's another manager that integrated or assimilated as well as Bobby V did during his years in, in, in the country. Yeah, and from what I understand, uh, Bobby V was one of these great young talents. He went to USC. Guess who else went to USC? Japan yeah. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. So, right. uh, and and um, I would also say that Valentine, you know, Trump got elected due to the endorsement of a lot of sports figures, and I didn't see Bobby Valentine campaigning for him so much, though I know he's a lifelong Republican. Uh, he has deep ties in he's Connecticut royalty, he owns that Bobby Valentine's bar and grill. Right. In fact, he claims to have invented the wrap as a sandwich, which I don't believe, but he claims to have invented yeah, it. But it's, but Trump hasn't really, you know, rewarded so many of his uh, sports people, if unless you consider mm-hmm. Linda McMahon wrestling to be a, sport. a sports person. So yeah, yeah. he needs to, he well, needs well, to let's, throw a bone well, to imagine. the sporting community. I think he should throw some more bones. Where do you think? Let's look at some other managers, coaches, yeah. and see where they should go in the in a Trump administration. Where do you think Belichick? Bill Belichick, of course, allegedly wrote a letter that Trump read. It's easy. Secretary um, of the Navy. Secretary of the Navy. Yeah, so, oh, he's well, got of course, the Navy connection. He's always valorized the Navy. Let's yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Mike Shanahan, Trump supporter, inoffensive, very right. vanilla. I can speak right. from experience. Um, but a very right wing, definite conservative, rock rib, Republican, country club kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Um, where can we send Shanahan that he wouldn't do too much damage? I would send him wherever John Bolton goes to try to water things down. Or maybe if uh, they reject B- John Bolton as undersecretary of state, he could serve as uh, Tillerson's right hand man. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I I think there are a lot of people that would like to see Shanahan leave the country, but he's got experience in Washington Yeah, because he managed the Washington football team. Mm -hmm. So he needs to find a job in the city. You're right, right. Mm -hmm. Greg Popovich, I think, would be an outlier for Trump. (laughs) He would curry some favor. Definitely turn down the appointment. (laughs) Well, yeah, but, you know, he could be persuaded. You know, he wants to make America... Yeah. Better than Trump wants to make it. He's a he studied. Guy. He's uh, Air Force intelligence officer, uh, which is of uh-huh. course a strike against him. Uh, the intelligence part uh, right. for a Trump appointee. He's, but he's, he's intelligent. Yes. Yeah. He has deep knowledge of the Soviet Union. Another strike against him because he knows those guys are up to no good. No, I think that the Popovich. He's also has a record of accomplishment. His players liked him. There, he's not yeah. a cartoon character. He's an actual person. Right. Unlike so, in other Lou words, Holtz like the CIA. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can CIA. I could see Popovich as being an undercover. See, I could see. Yep, I could see Trump appointing Bobby Knight ambassador to Puerto Rico, and then like a year or two in, someone says, "Um, they're not a different country, but it doesn't matter," Mm -hmm. and neither of them would care. Yeah, right. That'd be fine. Like Knight would go. He'd go happily, right? He'd go there. Um, I think Tommy Lasorda's got to go to Italy. He seems like a very Trump kind of guy. Nineteen seventies. Real, you know, mm-hmm. rooted in the old world, no modern way of thinking. Right. We Send just him to Italy. He should we, be there. We just mentioned Lou Holtz, Vatican, the Holy See. I would think that yep. with the Notre Dame I, connection, that's an, an obvious. Or maybe one. Dickie V would be a good one for the Vatican too. Hmm. I would say maybe something in terms of uh, dealing with the young people. You know, the diaper mm-hmm. dandies. I would say maybe yeah. Dickie. That would that would be Dickie yeah. V. You can yeah. put him in charge of uh, of Head Start. Yeah, that's right. Dickie yeah. V, head start. Yeah. Or Dickie V would be a great press. It's one and done. Press attaché. He'd be a great press attaché. I think he should be White House spokesman. All right, finally, I think Pete Carroll would be interesting. He's got some very liberal tendencies in the way he thinks. But, you know, 9-11 truth or stuff, Carroll yeah. could fit right in. Yeah. He could He's, fit right in. As I'm, I'm, I don't know how deep the 9-11 truth or stuff goes. I know that Andrew Bogut tweeted, if 1% of Pizzagate is true, and I just stopped right there. I'm like, Andrew Bogut, you are <laughs> off my list of formerly delightful Australians. If 1% of Pizzagate is true. There is. All right, fine. Let's, do, let's do like one or two more. called Comet Ping Pong Pizza. Yeah. All right, one, one of that's my, you know, I, I'm a regular comic ping pong, by the way. It's a great restaurant. Um, why is it, why the ping pong more. part? Why is it called ping pong? There are ping pong tables. It's oh, great. There's, right. a, there's three ping pong tables in the back. Yeah. And no base. A uh, couple more. John Gruden. Gruden. He could be Gruden. an ambassador. I would, there's a, any number of uh, Central American countries, you know, banana republics mm-hmm. because of his penchant for the, what is his play? The banana, spider banana. What is what is oh, the play always called? Sp- two two wide spider, two wide, two wide spider, two wide banana, two wide spider banana. Yeah. 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 So he could serve a two wide spider banana republic. Yeah. Yeah. And Nick Saban, I think you put Nick Saban somewhere like really intense. Again. Got a lot of work. Again, the man, why would you take a step down? The man rules an empire. The man mm. is a god. Like what what job could possibly satisfy That's Nick fine. Saban? Or what job, in what job could he wield the power he wields now? Mm, yeah. All right. Well, we can fill the rest of the cabinet um, with uh, other coaches next week. Well, uh, although I do have an idea. Oh, you got maybe, one more? Well, um, if you want to go with Nick Saban, yeah. maybe, maybe he can, you know, do the security and exchange commission since he already rules the SEC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could work with, uh, with uh, Linda McMahon at Small Business. He loves those little Debbie's cupcakes. That's kind of a started as a small business, grown exponentially. Slate Plus listeners, thank you so much for joining us. We will uh, talk to you next week.